Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Uh, start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The cost of higher education has become quite the hot button topic in recent years. Data continues to show that while the average salary of clinicians increases each year, it is extremely outpaced by the rise in student loan debt. A 2017 2017 study found that the average salary for a clinical audiologist had risen 47% over the last 12 years. Meanwhile, the cost of education had risen about 140%. It's going to take a lot of structural change to improve the situation, but what many clinicians don't realize is that their early decisions when it comes to negotiation can have big impacts later in their careers. Our guests today are going to help shed light on what is often an awkward part of our professional lives. Dr. Ashley Hughes, AUD, is an audiologist with Interacoustics in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Prior to joining Interacoustics, Dr. Hughes worked as a research audiologist for Starkey Hearing Technologies. She has served as an invited speaker at state and national national conferences and is an author on multiple published articles and posters. She is highly involved in the American Academy of Audiology, along with her state audiology organization, the Minnesota Academy of Audiology. Dr. Natalie Nelson, AUD, is a clinical trainer with Phonak. Prior to joining Phonak, Dr. Nelson worked as a clinical and dispensing audiologist in both ENT and private practice settings. Licensed in Colorado, but living in Texas, she is a member of the Colorado Academy of Audiology and the Texas Academy of Audiology. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Nelson and Dr. Hughes with us tonight. How are y'all doing? We are good. I'm excited to be here after a very long drive home from Houston earlier today. Yeah, I can imagine. I think you said you were on the road for quite a while there. Yeah, I was in the field starting at 7.15 a.m. this morning. So it's been a That's a day. day. I know That's a day. It's been a whirlwind for you too, Dakota. Yeah, yeah. You know, the days they come and go, but I'm always excited to have conversations like this. And actually to kick things off, I'm curious, um, what makes you guys passionate about teaching more about this? I know you've had opportunities to speak to current students um, and that you guys have done talks for current professionals. Why is this something that's important to you? I would say for me, it's just, um, I came out of graduate school, just really interested in paying off my student loans and doing it as quickly as I possibly could, just so I could have the peace of mind. And I've been successful at doing it. And I know it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of stigma around just having debt and things like that. And so for me, it's just making sure that if there are different solutions and situations that people can put themselves in to have more success with this, I'd love to be able to share my story and be able to um, work with people in order to, you know, have similar um, opportunities that I did once I graduated. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Natalie. How about you, Ashley? For me, um, when I was in graduate school earning my AUD, my husband was also in graduate school earning his MBA. um, And there were courses specifically dedicated towards negotiations. Um, And I think that watching how he and his peers navigated the job search and the negotiations that naturally come along with it made me realize how much is in with our control and what we can do to advocate for ourselves and for our future I mean, like you said, there is the stigma associated with negotiating, but realistically, our whole lives were negotiating. Um, It's just realizing and learning how we can do it in a collaborative way. 
Wow. That's great. I'm excited to break that down some more. That's awesome. And I know, um, Natalie is in Texas and Ashley, you're in Minnesota. How did you all meet each other? Uh, so we actually met, um, when I was a second year AUD student and Ashley still worked at, uh, Starkey, uh, as a research audiologist, I had been there, um, for a conference. And so we met that way. And then we actually came back together. I don't know how long ago was it, Ashley, maybe like a year ago. I think probably a year. Yeah. Ago. And we started really, um, conversing. We share a lot of similar interests. Um, I got her a little fired up to also want to pay her student loans off, I think. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, I think we realized when we got back in touch, how much we actually have in common and how much, at least I can speak for myself, how much I can learn from Natalie and, um, kind of how the, the two topics that we're both interested in negotiating and student loan repayments and financial management are really all intertwined. Yeah, that's that's a great point. The more I thought about this topic as I was kind of preparing for our discussion tonight, the more I realized that, yeah, that these two things that feel, I mean, they're definitely in that job-related world, right? They're they're related to money, but you don't really think about how they might be impacting each other. So I think I think it's going to be a really cool conversation. Um, so let's kick it off then. Why why do you think negotiations matter? Why is this something people need to be talking more about? I think that negotiating, we like you said, there is a stigma associated with it, but I think that a lot of that stigma just isn't true when it comes down to it. Um, when you negotiate with an employer, even if the negotiation isn't successful, it shows that you value yourself. And if you don't demonstrate that during an interview, it's going to be a hard case to make to, to show your value and to get them to value you as much as I know we all value ourselves. Um, and then on top of that, you know, life is not just about work and it's important that we're able to have a work-life balance, which means being able to afford the things that we like to do within reason. And I would agree with that. If you don't account for all of these things in your life, including your student loan repayment, when you are negotiating, then you're really not accounting for the amount of money that you need um, in order to uh, not just survive, but thrive in the world, I would say. I I agree with what Natalie said. Um, So for example, nobody would accept a job offer where they can't afford their rent with the salary. So why do we not treat our student loans the same way? Mm. Just a second, I'm going to flip on the video here. I think we've got that working now. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great insight. So starting with that in mind, and it's also, I think it's important to just like address that it's just the reality. Like it's something uncomfortable that people don't like to talk about that we have to take on student loans, but like it's the reality for people who go to graduate, who, you know, attend college in the first place and then go to graduate school. Um, so yeah, I think breaking down the stigma of that conversation is a huge first step. And then you have a little bit more confidence going into those negotiations to know, you know, what, where do we need to start? Because I think you're right. I don't know that many people factor in what their student loan repayment looks like when they go to the negotiating table. And as much as one salary might be great when it comes to quality of life, if you're not factoring that in, it's probably not going to actually be meeting what you thought were your requirements for quality of life. For sure. And I think, like you said, it is uncomfortable to negotiate, but the more you practice it, just like any other skill, the better you are at it and and the more comfortable you'll be doing it. Sure. Um, uh, So let's, can we start a little bit with like the offer? So we're going to just pretend we don't have to get too much into like uh, job interview skills, although that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, When I was in high school, I won a job interview competition at the state level. And so I'm very much into job interview (laughs) skills. That's a conversation for another day. But let's talk about offers. So this person, they crushed the interview. They did an amazing job. They get the call and they said, we want to make you an offer for this position. And that's so great. And so I have a fourth year student that I supervise. Shout out to Kyle. He's a fan of the podcast. Um, and he, he wanted me to ask you guys this question. So he's currently in this process. He's interview he has interviews, things like that. How, what is the best way to calculate what's a reasonable offer? Because I think the, the age old advice is like, well, what's the cost of living there? And, you know, maybe what does an average audiologist make there? But then even then that's kind of hard to even figure out, like in a town, if there's only 10 audiologists in the town, how do you know what the average salary is, you know? Um, and so even, and even when you do that process, you still can end up with a range that's like tens of thousands of dollars wide. And it's like, well, where is a realistic point here? So do you guys have any tips on before you get to the negotiating table, when you're about to get that offer, how to calculate what's a reasonable offer? 
Yeah, so I think that there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, BLS.gov is a great resource that will give you the median, 90th percentile, things like that um, for audiologists specifically in, in certain areas. Um, one thing that you mentioned is you can see what the average audiologist makes, but you're not an average audiologist. So don't ask for the average salary. Um, if yeah. you think that you're an excellent audiologist, find ways to justify your ask, um, ways that you can show them that you are above average and ask for that. And I also think that we all know that audiologists, um, you know, it was recently, relatively recently changed to a doctoral degree and the salaries don't necessarily reflect that. And so I think you can make a good case for maybe making more than average or more than what that area is currently paying. That's a great point. Um, can, there was a word, there was a, a phrase that you used a second ago. It was, uh, I don't remember what you said, like asking up to, or like why you're worth more. I don't remember what the phrase is. Oh, showing your value to them. Yes. Yes. What are some ways that a new clinician can early on kind of like make those examples or anything? I know that you guys have a little bit more experience, like in the workforce, if somebody was a new hiree, what kinds of skills do you think they should really like lean on in terms of that interview was, uh, you know, helpful or differentiates them from others? I think tracking, well, it depends, I think, on the practice or, or the employment setting that you're looking at. So if it's okay. a private practice or it's primarily dispensing, look at your unit sold and, and come in with hard numbers, um, not, you know, over 10 hearing aids a month, but say, you know, on an average, 17 hearing aids per month, give them exact numbers and then calculate how much actual revenue that brings into the practice. Okay. Natalie, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think too, just when I think about it too, just believing in yourself and believing in what you bring to the table. Um, Ashley and I, I feel like we talk to a lot of fourth years these days, and it seems like fourth years come out of school being told that they don't deserve to negotiate. They deserve whatever offer that they get, and they're just lucky to get a job and that they don't bring anything to the table. And that's just not true because I could go for a job. So I worked primarily with hearing aids. I did work in ENT, but I didn't do electrophys. I didn't do vestibular. I did hearing aids. I did diagnostics and that was it. So if I was going for a job today, that is going to be a full service clinic. And I was going up against a fourth year graduating that just had a beautiful, well-rounded practice experience their fourth year. They're more qualified than I am for mm -hmm. this job. So I just keep telling them, remember that you do have value and you, when you come out of school, you have so much value and you have so much worth. And just to remember that when you are interviewing, that you are probably a spectacular candidate for whatever job you're interviewing for. Yeah. <laughs> Very that's really think, Sorry. Sorry. I also think during the interview process, it's uh, okay. And I would say encouraged to say what you're willing to do to get that extra pay. So they offer you X and you want X plus 10. Um, you can offer to, you know, I'll help manage social media or I mm -hmm. will, you know, present, do research on our clinical findings and present that at conferences. So, you know, if you're, if you're a go-getter, show how that will benefit them and make it, you know, a more, again, a more collaborative process because they're not going to give you any amount of money just because you say you want it. You're going to have to, you know, do something in return. Yeah, that's that. great advice. That's great advice. Yeah, I, I think giving concrete examples, I hadn't thought of that before about like, that makes so much sense. If you want to ask for more, it's one thing to say like, I'm worth this much, but it's another to bring something to the table to show. Um, I think that's a good, and we, so many of these graduating uh, students, you're right. They have skills that maybe more seasoned clinicians don't when it comes to things like social media or creating graphics or marketing campaigns and things like that. And I think that's a really great place to, while you're a student, build up those skills. And then uh, by the time you graduate, use, have that on your resume and use those as an opportunity to, uh, to, you know, push your negotiation a little bit. I think that's, that's great advice and have that confidence. Like Natalie said, I, I really appreciate that. Um, so hopefully you heard that Kyle, hopefully that's helpful for you. Um, I do you, you think, Kyle. yeah, he's got this. <laughs> do you think there's any, uh, uh, blatant red flags that uh, people who are in the job negotiation, or I guess we're, we're not at the negotiating part yet, sorry, pre that, we're just at the offer. Is there anything like offer-wise that sticks out as a red flag to you all to say, okay, you know, either you're gonna have a hard road negotiating this or get out of this situation, or it's a green flag, like, oh, that seems like they're being a little bit more flexible. Like anything that you think people should look for in an offer that can be helpful advice? I would say, 
I think everything is always, something is always going to be negotiable. So for me, a red flag would be that they're not even willing to have the conversation. That would be mm. for me personally, I would probably run the other direction if they were not open to, you know, discussing different opportunities and ways that we could make both parties happy. Okay. I totally agree with what you said. I think that everything realistically is negotiable and what that is at each company and each practice will be different. But even outside of whether or not the negotiation will be successful, if you can't have that conversation about what your goals are and what you'd, what you'd like to see change, even if it doesn't change, but if you can't have that conversation, how is your working relationship going to function with that person? Yeah. That's a great point. And you have, you see that flexibility, that ability to collaborate that early on, like before you even started mm-hmm. working there, it's a whole, it's a whole demonstration, I guess, of like their culture. Um, that's really good. And I'm, I had, when I was in the job interview process, I hadn't seen anything like this, but I am seeing now some places are offering like student loan forgiveness. So do you feel like when it comes to those extra perks, like considering insurance benefits, if they have some kind of student loan forgiveness, things like that. Are there any of those things that you weigh more highly than another perk kind of a thing? Or how much should, how much does the the person negotiating need to factor that into their mind when it comes to what the, the number of the offer is? Does that question make sense? It does. I think that's a very personal question. Um, so for me, for example, salary and PTO are the two most important things. Um, so if the salary is not quite where I want it to be, but I can get an extra week or two of PTO, like, great, I, I would okay. definitely consider that. But I think all of this can also be figured out by creating what's known as a preference sheet, where you essentially list all of the things that are important to you. So like PTO, health insurance, um, CEU reimbursement, salary, of course, um, and then you weight them. And okay. so you create your preference sheet before you even start interviewing. And then you have a column for each place that you're interviewing that you get an offer from and you put your, your score. So let's say it's on a, a zero to 10 scale for each of those categories. And then it's a more objective way of comparing different offers. That's excellent. That's great. I really, really like that idea. <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to steal that. <laughs> awesome. I hope so. Yeah. Natalie, do you have anything that you, that you weigh heavily? Um, I, I agree with Ashley. It's personal. So it's, okay. I say whatever your priorities are for me. Um, I was very vocal when I interviewed right out of grad school that one of the most important thing for me was to pay off all of my student loans within five years of graduation. Um, so I was very upfront about that, that that's what I was looking for. And, um, I did have practices build offers with, uh, you know, a certain number of, of, or a certain amount of student loan reimbursement, moving expenses, things like that, that would help me get to where I wanted to be. So I think it, it yeah, it just really depends, but I would agree with Ashley. I actually, um, Ashley and I both, one, one of our things we have in common, we just love spreadsheets. And so <laughs> same with me. Um, I did a spreadsheet for all the practices and then I weighted all of the pros and cons based on what I was most looking for um, in a practice. So, yeah. That's great. That sounds like, I think that's a shared personality type among audiologists, something that draws us to the field. I'm also a spreadsheet geek. My wife's better. She can like color code, like based on ranges, she can do way more stuff with it. I'm a lot more limited, but I do find them to be very useful tools. So I'm, I'm hoping people are going to take that weighted scale. I think that's a really great piece of advice. Um, okay. So now, okay. So we've kind of come to the table. We know what our priorities are going into the negotiation. And then let's say it's on the phone. They've called you. They say, we want to offer you this position. It's going to be for this much. And like, we want you to start on this date. I was in this situation and I didn't know, like, am I supposed to negotiate this right now? Do I need them to email me? Can I think about this and write it down and get back to them? Do I need to just say yes? Like what, what should you tell people in this situation to do? I would, even if you love the offer, I would never accept it right when they call you or email you and give you the offer. I would always say something along the lines of, thank you, I'm so flattered. Can I have a week to think about it? Or can I have X amount of time to think about it? Um, That avoids you making an emotional decision about something that you could end up doing for years. Um, It allows you to kind of take a step back and look at the picture holistically, maybe ask them for uh, their benefits package so that you better understand the whole offer because, um, you know, a certain salary with one week of PTO is, you know, at least to me would be far less appealing than the same salary or even slightly less with five weeks of PTO. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it allows you time to kind of look at the entire package and figure out what it is that you want to negotiate. 
That's great. That's great. Yeah. I, I, fortunately I didn't just say yes, but I panicked in the moment because I wasn't prepared for that to be the conversation at all. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. You're, you're allowed that time, right? I don't think anybody's going to cancel their offer if you don't say yes immediately on the phone. So I think that's good advice, right? No, and if you think that they're going to, they probably need you even more than, than you realize if they want you to make an offer in a day. So I would say that if they pushed me to make a decision quicker Mm -hmm. um, and they said three days instead of a week or something, I would probably keep that in mind when I was counter offering. Yeah, that's a, that's good advice. That's a good insight if that's the case. Um, so, so then how, so you, you write down what they said, or they send you an email and it's got the benefits and it's got all the details that you could possibly need. What should you then do? Like, how do you start navigating that counter offer? What's too much to ask? What's not, I know it's going to be kind of dependent on the situation and the job and things like that, but are there any good rules of thumb for just like building up to when you're ready to make that counter offer? That is a really good question. Um, so like I said, I, I would look up the average salary and things like that on bls.gov. I like to use that instead of our organization's surveys because um, when you look at Asher AAA surveys, those are self-reported um, salaries. And when you look at bls.gov, those are no longer self-reported salaries. Those are, you know, more, I guess I can't say for sure that they're more accurate, but I trust those ones more. Sure. Um, So I would start with that. I don't have like a number that I think is too much or or too little, well, too much to ask for. Um, I think it depends, of course, on where you're living. $100,000 in, you know, Arkansas is not the same thing as $100,000 in California um, Mm -hmm. or in New York or something like that. So, you know, you have to keep in mind things like that as well when you're when you're trying to figure out your number, but you definitely want to figure out uh, your reservation point before you counter offer. And so that is the, and really you should figure that out before the offer even comes in, before you're interviewing. Um, so the absolute lowest that you not just are willing to accept, but can accept. And that would okay. be based on rent, groceries, um, student loans, of course, but even things that you don't have to do, but like to do. If, um, you know, going on two vacations a year is important, or if you really want to get a dog and want to account for that amount. Um, You know, we've gone to school for a long time and we deserve to be able to have some nice things and and some work-life balance. And so accounting for that when you're creating your ask is, is really important. Yeah, that's great. So you call that your reservation point? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. Essentially, it's your walk away point. Gotcha. Um, is it is it inappropriate to ask if the position has like a minimum or a maximum that they could pay? I know that there's, I think you're more likely to see that in like an established hospital system where they're probably have more strict HR and the hiring process versus a private practice where they might have a lot more flexibility. But is it inappropriate to say like, What's, what's the max you could go? You know what I mean? Questions along that line of, of what the range would be for the hiree? I don't think that that's inappropriate, but I don't think you're going to get an honest answer either. <laughs> that's good insight. <laughs> so instead of asking that, let's say they offered, um, you know, $70,000 or something like that. Instead of asking what's the highest they can go, I would say, you know, do you have an audiologist two position and I can take on extra tasks to to get that. So, you know, trying to, to get them to widen the window instead of trying to figure out where their window is right now. Sure. Widen the window. That's good. I feel like, I feel like Ashley's got a lot of like nuggets like that little (laughs) one-liners. I think those are very helpful. They stick, they stick way better for me. Um, is, should a, uh, hiree be fearful that the offer could be taken away if they try to negotiate or if they try to negotiate too much. Cause I know that kind of is part of the anxiety of negotiation in general is like, I'm going to mess something up by being too needy or whatever, but we're not being that way. Right. No, um, I don't, I don't think there's any chance that from negotiating tactfully, you would get the offer taken away. Now, if your counter offer is, you know, if they offer you 70 and you say, how about 180, um, then yeah, there's a chance possibly that they would 
you know, that they would rescind the offer. So what does it mean then to counter offer tact tactfully? What, what does that look like? Do you guys have any specific insights into, you know, ways, ways to approach those conversations other than, you know, like blatant disregard for the person or what the orig- original offer was, but are there little things that maybe you've seen when hiring someone that people could navigate that better? I think it goes back into um, taking a look at yourself and what you can offer the practice, because when it comes down to it, you're asked, you have to justify what you're asking for. And so if you are counter offering to do it tactfully, I think coming back with exact reasons on why you think that you deserve this higher amount. And if you can come up with really good, tangible, real examples from either practices that you worked for, if you're graduating, you have clinical experience, like I said earlier. So just coming with these tangible examples, maybe some accomplishments and things like that. I think just bringing to the table what you can offer practice can really help um, in the negotiation process when it comes to doing it tactfully. I totally agree. I also think that, okay, so Natalie's hiring, she gives me an offer and I go to counter offer. The first thing I'm going to say is I would love to accept this position. I am really looking forward to this opportunity. I'm willing to accept it with these changes. Um, okay. So, you know, start by flattering them because the whole negotiation process is really relationship building. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I, I'm going to share is that I, my go-to line when they make an offer is it sounds like we're not that far apart. Even if we are, I always say that she, everything positive, everything sounds like nice, positive imagery. <laughs> That's great. Cause we already talked about how this whole, the awkward part of this is really just a collaborative thing. It's not that awkward. And so starting with a, you know, a positive note, even if it's not that positive, you're setting a tone for the entire conversation. They and started the entire with a number. relationship. If you end up accepting it. Mm, good point. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, okay. So when it comes to one of the not so tactful ways that people deal with this, and I have heard of this happening before, I've never done this. I would never do this, but I have heard of people doing this before. So you've applied multiple places, you've had multiple interviews, you get an offer from a place that's third on your list, your priority list. And it's not that exciting of an offer, but it's above your reservation point. It's reasonable. And you haven't heard back from any of the other places. In fact, your number one place, you have an interview next week there. And so you haven't even interviewed with them yet. What is your advice to people in this situation? I know, I think I can say objectively, don't accept an offer and then reject it later because that's probably not, it's a pretty small profession, but I have to imagine there are situations where people have to do that. And so I'm curious in these kind of more like awkward, you know, there's just a lot of factors going on here. What is your advice to people who might be in those situations? I think there's a few ways to approach this. I think you should buy time with the place you got the offer from. And you can do that. Honestly, I'm still in the interview process with a couple other places. Can I have two weeks to think about this? Then you go into your interview with your number one place and you tell them about your offer. You don't have to tell them who it's with or where it is, but um, you know, you guys are my number one choice. This is really where I want to end up. I did just get an offer and I have this much time. Is there any way that we can expedite this process? Those would be my top two choices. I also strongly believe that everybody has to do what's best for them. um, And that includes the hiring managers when they're interviewing candidates and, you know, deciding who to make an offer to. And so if what's best for you and nobody's willing to give you extra time is to accept an offer, then I, I think that, you know, you have to protect yourself financially and make sure that you have a job after graduation. Yeah. It's definitely a tough situation. <laughs> De- a not a, an easy one. A little bit of a dance, a little bit of a game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've made your, so they've made an offer. You've gathered your information, the, the, the best data you could find. And the website you said is bls.gov.org. BLS.gov. BLS.gov. I've never heard of that before. So that's a great resource. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You have a number in mind. You might have, oh, okay. Here's a question. How, so I know salary tends to be the number one thing we think of as the negotiable aspect of these things. 
But when it comes to things like the other stuff that's in the offer, the insurance package, the PTO, are those things typically negotiable or like how much of a factor should the, I, I think Natalie, you had mentioned earlier, like everything should realistically be negotiable in this process. So what are some things that people should keep in mind when it comes to the extras in the job offer that they maybe haven't considered before? I've negotiated a lot of things over the last few years. Um, you know, like I said, I had one practice offer a certain amount of student loan reimbursement. Um, I always negotiate for um, moving expenses. Um, you know, they might not have a reimbursement for moving expenses. They might call it something else like a signing bonus or something of that sort. So it's sometimes it's just tactfully trying to figure out the wording that they use in order to determine if they do have wiggle room in different places. But um, PTO, sick days, there's a, I think a pretty wide amount of things that you can negotiate with a job offer outside of salary. Agreed. I, similar to Natalie, I've successfully negotiated a few other things. Um, PTO, sign-on bonuses. I was employed somewhere where it was against this, that state's law to directly reimburse for moving expenses. So instead we uh, negotiated a higher sign-on bonus um, so that it would cover moving expenses. Sign-on bonuses, in my opinion, can be better than a moving expense because uh, then if you decide to just pack up a truck and drive yourself there, you yeah. have that money you know, in your pocket. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that things that we might not traditionally think of like health insurance. So let's say um, you have health insurance through your partner's job or something like that. Um, and you're negotiating and it seems like you're kind of hitting a wall when it comes to PTO or salary or those things that are important to you. You can say, you know, I actually, you know, my partner, you know, has really great health insurance. We're going to be on their health insurance. I'm not going to need yours because I'm going to be saving the company money in that way. Is there any way we can look at an extra week of PTO? Obviously, I'm really hung up on PTO right now. <laughs> she really likes the vacation, this one. <laughs> yeah, Ashley's a fan of vacation. We're all a fan of vacation. Um, but yeah, that's really good insight. I hadn't really thought about using things in that way. I mean, it makes sense. It's all a part of the package, right? But those to me have always seemed a little bit more concrete and, uh, you know, not adjustable. So I think that's really good advice to, you know, think of those things as a part of the financial package. Uh, one thing I really struggled with was to like quantify those things. You know what I mean? Like, let's say I have two offers and the salaries are very different, but the benefits are very different. It was hard for me to like mathematically determine if these benefits outweigh these to then cancel out. You know what I mean? Do you have any insights into that kind of like mental math? I guess it doesn't have to be mental math and you can maybe put it into a spreadsheet. What do y'all think about that? Um, well, I think the, first, the best option would be to get their benefits package from them, but not every company is willing to share that before you've accepted an offer. Um, so you could just look up like average health insurance costs per month and, and things like that, just so you have some sort of quantifiable way of accounting for these things. PTO can, of course, be quantified based on the salary. Mm -hmm. um, Natalie, do you have any other suggestions? Yeah, I would. Um, I had a my first audiology job was in a private practice that didn't have. Um, they didn't have group health insurance because it was a really small practice. And so mm -hmm. for me, um, that wasn't going to be part of the benefits pa package. So for me, I had to go on the marketplace. So I used the marketplace in Colorado to just look up um, how much it was probably going to cost me to have um, health insurance. And then I used that to negotiate more money to my salary to pay for my health insurance. Yeah, that's great. That's so great. Thank you for sharing. That's perfect. That's a perfect example. <laughs> um, Oh shoot, I was gonna ask a second question on that, but for some reason I can't remember what it was. Dakota, can I go back to one thing that you said earlier real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had mentioned that um, you know, you didn't realize that health insurance and things like that are negotiable. And it made me think that not, you know, they might not be willing to negotiate on that, but psychologically speaking, when you get them to say no to something, that makes them more compelled to say yes to the next thing or to say yes to something. Just like it's our human instinct. We just rejected somebody. You know, it's not truly yeah. a rejection, but we just said no. And so it makes us want to say yes to the next thing. Um, so there can be value in them saying no, as long as you're, again, willing to work collabor collaboratively to figure out what the yes will be. That's great. That's really great. Um, so that's okay. Do you have any more little bits of wisdom like that? Because I think those are those like, I mean, it's not like a psychological game, but it's more in that negotiation mental battle. You know what I mean? Where it's kind of the first step is getting over 
the awkwardness of just countering the offer. I think a lot of people, that's just like a big first step is saying, okay, I'm not going to just accept this. I'm just, I'm going to give them something else. You got to put in some work beforehand, but you're going to have something else to say. And so I think there are some things like that about, um, I think the first thing you guys shared about approaching it collaboratively with like the other things you could offer that would justify this increase. That's awesome. Um, and then I guess thinking of how things can be reworked when it comes to PTO or when it comes to these additional benefits and how that can be more viewed as like a financial, you know, package, the sign on bonuses, things like that. I think that's really good insight. Um, and then just now with the, you know, having like, if they're going to give you a no here, then you can be ready to ask a question where you're more likely to get a yes. Are there any other things you all have run into maybe personally in a negotiation where you were like, oh, this is a good strategy that, you know, I need to share with somebody or I need to use in the future? Helpful to ask them questions so that you can figure out what is negotiable. And you can't just say like, you know, is your salary negotiable or is PTO negotiable to get the answer that you're really looking for? I would ask um, more um, open-ended questions. Like, can you tell me a little bit more about the work-life balance here? And then depending on your answer, maybe you realize like, oh, maybe I can ask if I can work four 10-hour days instead or um, questions like that that hopefully will get you, you know, a little visibility to what the culture is like where you're interviewing. Yeah. Um, you all had shared a, a really interesting statistic with me and I was hoping you could maybe break it down a little bit further. Um, and it's just, it points to the importance of taking advantage of these conversations and not just accepting the first offer. Um, it was something like a two to 4% gain from like the initial offer can equal like two to 4 million over the course of your career. So I think that just points to the importance of not being passive in this process, in the job search process. So is there anything you all can speak to when it comes to the long-term impact of being proactive in these conversations early on? Yeah, so I think, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Natalie. I was just going to say that that's a lot of money, two to $4 million that you might be missing out on. It's a lot to leave on the table if you're not going to negotiate. Agreed. And I think a big misnomer that I've heard from many um, soon to be audiologists or new graduates is it was my first offer. I'll negotiate the next one. But your first offer oftentimes dictates your second, which, you know, dictates your third. And that's how that two to 4% turns into two to 4 million, you know, over the course of your lifetime. Yeah. So they build off of each other, I guess, is a way to put that. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't think enough people realize that, that it's, I think, it's fair to say that at your second job, when you're in the negotiation process, they are interested in what you made at the job before, like kind of what your starting point is, or, you know, what you're probably only going to want to go up, at least stay the same or go up from where you were before. So if you already start low, you're, you're just kind of fighting your way back the rest exactly. of your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so unrelated to being hired, but just like while in the workplace, when it comes to things like negotiating a raise or things like that, do you have, is there, I know that's not really what this conversation is about as much, but is there anything that you all would want to speak to there when it comes to that aspect of negotiations? Uh, for example, like when is a good time to approach that? Um, is it different when it comes to like, is it different from the job offer negotiation kind of a thing? I, to me, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I found it to be somewhat similar. It just depended on the setting that I was in, but, um, you know, I can think of just one, I did mine usually try to do it around my annual review. And I just like Ashley said earlier in the interview here, um, I came with concrete numbers. I came with my, um, monthly average hearing aid sales, my annual revenue that I've brought into the practice. And then, um, because I felt like I needed to. I also brought like 15 words. I felt exemplified who I am as a person and what I bring to the practice. And then I yeah. detailed out, you know, why I felt I, um, you know, embodied those words and, and just concrete examples of what I've done over the last year. And um, it definitely worked. It took me from, you know, they, they offered uh, a really small raise and then I countered it for something else. So and so would a conversation like that start with you requesting a raise, they make an offer, and then you're countering that offer? That's how I did it. So it was okay. a very general conversation. You know, we're going to talk to you about this last year. It was, a, for me, it was a very whirlwind year. I was at a practice that had a lot of change. A lot of um, people leave the practice, and I got kind of thrown into 
fend for myself. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had did a lot of growing up that year. It was my first year out of grad school. So it just was very busy. And so I felt like I really rose to the occasion. And so I let them kind of go through their spiel and you know, talk about um, everything and give me the offer. And then I sort of throughout the process of just us talking, I gave that information. And then at the end, I asked for the counter. Um, and then I just waited. They And they, they came back to me and they accepted it. So oh, that's great. I, I, I agree with what Natalie said. Oh, I'm sorry, Dakota. I was just gonna say, I think it's helpful to hear like examples of how that plays out. Because I think part of the fear is just like, I don't know what's going to happen when I ask, you know, and I think, yeah, Natalie, you sharing that is really, really helpful. And that people sure. do it too. Like there are real people out here that are doing these things. And, and <laughs> yes. it's nice to hear yeah. from real people. <laughs> exactly. For sure. I do. So I do something similar to what Natalie does is throughout the year, wherever I'm working, I make a list of anything I do that is part of my job description and not part of it. So, you know, wrote six blogs for X or, you know, led this study or um, learned how to do X, which, you know, made this and, you know, this more efficient or us able to complete this faster or whatever it is. Um, So, you know, having that, writing it down as you go along is going to be obviously more accurate than trying to remember at the end of the year what you did. I also think it's really important to practice what you're going to say. So I go into every annual review similar to the way I go into negotiation. Um, I practice what I'm going to say if I'm happy with the offer and their review of me. And I and I do this for negotiations too. I literally practice out loud what I'm going to say if I am agreeing with them and if I don't agree with them. Um, and then the last thing that Natalie said that I think is super important is anytime you can let them offer first. Because you could end up asking for less than what they were going to offer you. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a great insight. I had never considered that before, but it's sort of, it's, I think of like Michael Scott on The Office and there's that one episode where he's talking and it's like, let them talk first. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything. Like he's just sitting there silently across from the other guy. But I do think in this kind of a situation, you're so right. It puts them at the place where you then kind of have the ability to respond and, you know, you have a little bit more power in the situation. I think that's a really good, that's a good idea. Cool. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's, I, I also agree with the, I'll negotiate my next job offer. I definitely had, fortunately my wife's like, just like, slap that out of me. She was like, no, like you've got to be ready. You got to be prepared. If somebody makes you an offer to counter it with something, you can't just accept the first thing. I was like, oh, but I don't want to have the conflict. And what it's I learned in the process name is- for what it's called when, well, not just when you accept their first offer, but um, if you make an offer and they accept it right away, then it's called the winner's curse because you know that you uh, offered less than what they were, you know, than their max. Mm. Wow. Yeah, don't don't run into that <laughs> new graduates. And it's I mean it's okay if that happens, right? Yeah. Like as long as you're able to pay your bills and you're happy with your salary, it's okay, but it's something good to keep in mind in the future. It's like maybe I didn't ask high enough. Sure. Sure. Um okay, so can we then not really switch gears but kind of take that um considering life expenses thing and talk a little bit about student loans. If there's anything, if there was a piece of advice, like, well, actually, you know, what? I'll save that for the end. If you guys want to start thinking of like one piece of advice for like a new graduate when it comes to negotiation or student loans, I'd love to hear that. That'll be how we close out. But before we get to that, um, we are definitely in the midst of like a student loan crisis. And I feel like in the audiology world and the Facebook groups, it's a constant conversation of, are they going to enact this program that'll help relieve some of this debt? Is anyone a part of a, you know, a student relief, uh, student debt relief program in their state? Like, what are some new opportunities? Is your job offering that? It just, it's definitely on all of our minds collectively all the time. Um, And so I'm curious for a student, let's, we do have some listeners who are undergrads and who are going to be pursuing audiology, is there anything that you would say to them this early on, uh, like when they're about to sign on for their first student loan when it comes to grad school? Um, For me, it's um, honestly do your research on how much money you actually need, because you're going to get that $20,500 offered to you every single year. And you're going to think, oh my gosh, so much money. I'm like going to be rich and not have to work. Um, and maybe your program doesn't allow you to have the time to work. Uh, mine did if you chose to, um, but 
consider how much money you actually need to take out and only take the amount out that you need because when you're in school, it's accruing interest the entire time. And then you graduate and then all that interest that accrued while you were in school just gets dumped on the principal and then you start paying interest on it again um, as you're now attempting to pay off your student loans. So um, do yourself a favor and don't do that. Only take out the amount that you actually need um, and you'll be just much happier when you graduate uh, for sure. <laughs> And outside of that, I would say look for positions too, graduate assistantships, tuition waivers. Um, outside of your department too, my first graduate assistantship was through our health center on campus. Yeah, mine was in the College of Education. I had two, one my second year and one my third year. And then I also had a tuition waiver for recruitment. So for me, I went to the same undergraduate university that I went to graduate school at, and they had certain waivers for first year audiology students that were um, either for minorities or they were for students that they wanted um, to stay there and not transfer to a different university. So I did have one of those my first year as well. So there's always- the psychology a department can also be a good place to find assistantships that are somewhat related to you know, hearing and audiology. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, that's really good advice for our students out there. I hope they're writing that down. <laughs> I think another thing I'm going to manage to turn your student loan question into a negotiation answer. Let's do it. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. Is uh, grad, the whole grad school application process is also a negotiation. So you apply to five schools. School number three gives you an offer that includes um, a graduate assistantship, but school number two is your top offer. You take that offer and you communicate it to school number two and say, you guys are my top choice. The same thing you would do with the job interview. You guys are my top choice. This is what another university offered me. Is there anything that you can do like that's similar to this? Wow. Wow. I don't and that is something I did that. not know when I was in grad school, but I do know people who successfully did that. Yeah, that is that is really valuable advice. I didn't realize you could do that. That is really, really valuable advice for our students out there. And I know if our if our fourth years who have basically been in a full-time job for a year feel that uncomfortable navigating that conversation, I can't imagine that a fresh undergrad trying to get into grad school after taking the GRE and about to enter this world they feel like they know nothing about, they must feel really intimidated by that. So I think that's going to be a really big confidence booster and great piece of advice for them when they start to navigate this conversation that it's it's also an opportunity to negotiate when they're you know starting grad school. That's a really great example. For sure. And it is nerve wracking, but just kind of think to yourself, like, what's the worst that can happen? They're, they're not going to say you can no longer come to our school anymore. They mm -hmm. just might not be able to match your ask and that's okay. No. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you were accepted. There's a reason that they accepted you into their program. They're interested in having you as a student. So you never know unless you ask. That's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, coming, kind of merging the student loan conversation and the uh, job negotiation conversation. Can your negotiation for your job is that can that affect your student loans in any way? Can it like? Uh, I'm not really sure how to nail down this question, but I think I've heard before people who had concerns about in the job hunt, like if you negotiate too high of a number. I don't. I don't know. Is there something there that I'm starting to ask you? If you're on a, no, I think I know what you mean. Um, so when you graduate, you'll have the standard repayment plan, which is just based solely on the amount of money that you have. And it's so you can pay it off within 10 years. But most people choose to transfer to an income-based repayment plan. An income-based repayment means it's based on your income. And so they do take into consideration how much money you make. And they're typically looking to take, um, they want you to pay between 10 to 15% of your discretionary income towards your student loans. And so when you are job negotiating and you are taking an offer, um, you'll you'll know in your mind that part of your income is going to be end up being part of your student loan payment. So I think that's probably what people are thinking of um, when it comes to um, looking at how their job offer might affect their student loans overall. Sure. But I think something to keep in mind that um, is more of like a long-term thing when it comes to that is okay, now you decided to take a lower salary because your student loan payments will be lower. And then in 20 years or in 15 years, your student loans are paid off and your salary is still lower because your mm. first salary was lower. Yeah. Yeah. I think both of those are, those are, those perfectly answer that question. Um, and I see, I see what you're saying now though, with the, with the long-term option actually not being such a good long-term option. Um, is it, is it, what's, what's the, is it appropriate to bring up like 
in the job negotiation process, look, I've got a lot of student loans. I need a salary that's going to help me, you know, do like, is that, is that, I mean, is it well known enough of a, a situation for graduate students or is that something that you would avoid during that conversation? I would avoid that because it's, it's pushing your problem on them. Mm. Um, it doesn't like your student loans aren't because of them. Um, I would ask for higher dollar amounts based on the things I can offer them and not um, a problem that I have. And I, it's, I'm not saying that people who have student loans, I still have student loans that they made a mistake or anything like that, but I would try and get the amount that you want by showing them that you're worth it and not showing them that you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole, which we all are after grad yeah. school. <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate the reality check. Um, Okay. So then when it comes to repayment in general, you've got the job, you've already set up that you're going to do income-based or however you're going to do your repayment. How do you all recommend when it comes to someone who maybe who comes to you and they say, Hey, I'm really struggling with figuring out what the best way is to repay my loans. I know Natalie, it sounds like you were really successful in how you've been navigating that. Um, Cause I know there's different like approaches to this. Is it do you pay the the minimum payment and just get by till it's over? Do you try to find a job? I, I didn't do this, but I think there are some jobs that are government-based that can help with that process. Do you treat it like, I've heard of like debt management plans, like the snowball where you go for whatever your smallest one is. And you were, like what what is your general recommendation when it comes to loan repayment? So I think it's definitely dependent upon what the person's priority is overall. If your priority is to pay off your student loan debt before 20 to 25 years on an income-based repayment plan, you're going to want to pay way above what you're actually paying on your plan. So you're going to have a small amount, but you're going to want to pay above and beyond that in order to get out ahead. Um, the couple different methods for debt repayment are the snowball method, which was made famous by Dave Ramsey. So that's where you're paying your you know, let's say you have several debts, you're paying the minimum on all your debts, and then you're taking the smallest one, regardless of what the interest rates on all of your debts are, you're just taking the smallest one and you're paying extra money until that one's gone. And then you're going to do that to the next smallest one until you pay all of them off. Um, the other flip side to that is the debt avalanche, which is the strategy that I used and am, I really believe in. And that's really just because you're paying the minimum on all your debts, but you're paying the extra money that you have towards your highest interest rate first. And then you're just doing it in order of interest rate. And the reason it's an avalanche is because you're getting smaller in your interest rate. So your money's going further and you're paying things off faster. Um, I really am very black and white. I think it's the spreadsheet thing. So for <laughs> me, it just makes sense. Financially, I'm saving so much money doing debt avalanche. But social psychology says that the debt snowball is actually better for people mentally because paying off that small amount gives people the motivation to keep going. So for me, it may not make the most mathematical sense, but for you, it might be the best possible option to keep yourself going. So I usually tell people to do your research, find out how much of a payoff it's going to be, especially if you're going to do avalanche versus snowball. But ultimately do what you think is going to keep you motivated to keep going. It's great. I really have nothing to add to that. I have the same <laughs> approach to my student loan payments as Natalie. Sure. I, re I really appreciate how you broke that down, Natalie. That was, a I think that was really, really helpful. And I do appreciate you sharing why the snowball method seems really popular, even though I, I agree that I think paying off highest interest rate to lowest interest rate, that does make more sense to me in terms of saving money for yourself. But I do think we like that instant, not instant gratification, obviously, but a little bit quicker gratification. And it might be that motivator to get you to the next one. And I can understand it because when I graduated, I went to undergrad and grad school, obviously. And my undergraduate loans are like $3,000, $5,000. My graduate school loans are these giant $20,000 loans that with the capitalized interest became 25,000. Well, mm. by the time I graduated, and so those are my highest interest rates. And so I'm sitting there monthly chipping away at $25,000, trying to get rid of that single loan while looking at the rest of them. And I can see why that would be daunting to people yeah. to do versus like, oh, I paid off this $3,000 one. I'm on top of the world. Like some people need that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think it matters what method you use as long as it's successful for you. That's great. Um, with, with everything, there's been a lot of up in the air with COVID in terms of uh, debt relief and changing interest rates for student loans. Um, there's just been a lot, I think there's been a lot of confusion and people don't really know what's going on. Um, 
and I've never thought of this before, but in these times, like, are, is there, are there ways to negotiate your debt or your interest rates? Do you ever encourage people to like consider like other financing options or things like that when, when it just seems really daunting or how do you, how do you have that conversation with someone who's struggling through that? So you can always choose to look at refinancing your loans. Obviously those with federal loans that, um, under the CARES Act had 0% interest the last year. Um, that's been awesome. You would not want to refinance those at this point because you're not paying any interest. Um, but for people that have private student loans, um, you may want to look at refinancing. Um, my sister, I helped her refinance about a year ago now, and she went from, she had private student loans, 8% interest rate on quite a bit of money. And she was able to refinance down to 4%. And then she does have federal loans as well. And so for her this past year, she hasn't been paying on her federal loan. She's been paying extra on the loans that are still accruing interest. So for me, um, you can always look at refinancing, but it may not be your smartest option depending on what's going on, especially right now with, with COVID, you wouldn't want to refinance your federal loans. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. That's really great. I think it's also encouraging to hear that she was able to successfully refinance to such a much a half the interest rate. I think that's awesome. That's a, that's going to be inspiring for some people, I think, to know that it's not so scary. I do think there's some fear in this idea of once I don't want to mess with it, right? Like mm-hmm. I'll pay it off. I'll do what I have to do, but I don't want to mess with anything and mess it up. And so I think, yeah, that can be the confidence boost that a lot of people need. And the nice thing too, with most refinancing companies, you can go on their website, you can do fill out some preliminary information. It's usually income level um, or income amount, the amount you have left in your student loans and your occupation, your level of education, things like that. And it'll give you an estimate of what they can do for you. And they'll give you fixed, fixed interest rates. They'll give you variable interest rates. And they'll kind of tell you, you know, if we give you a seven year loan term, here's the interest rate that you can do. And this is all without them doing a hard credit check. So it's just giving you an idea of if you think that how that stacks up against what you currently have, and if that would even be worth looking into and moving forward. So it's always an option to even just look into if you're curious. Yeah. Ooh, that is good. You, you all have come with the very specific examples and strategies, and I think people are going to be very, very happy about that. Um, we're coming up right on the end of our time. I know I had mentioned a little while ago, if you had like a specific you know, thing you want a listener to remember, whether it's about negotiations or about uh, student loans or you know, whatever it is, if you had to break it down into like a sentence or two, um, do either of you have something you want to share? I'll let you go, Ashley. Yeah, um, so a couple things. Um, I think that when you're approaching these negotiations, remember to think about um, what you can provide for them and kind of what a win looks like for the other person and not necessarily for you. I mean, also for you, but that will help, you know, create that relationship and also um, help you get to a, a successful yes, because a successful negotiation ends with both parties being happy. So they both give up a little bit to gain a lot and, and then you've got a great relationship. So trying to think about what a win looks like for them um, is probably the biggest thing and then practice. I would say for me, um, since I'm more on the student loan side, is just do your research, understand your loans. That's the biggest thing is, um, you know, you're 18 or whatever age you are and you signed on the dotted line. You don't, you probably didn't know what you were signing off on. So go back, don't be afraid to dig in, understand the types of loans that you took out, what they mean um, and what the options are for them. And just make sure you really understand all that has to do with your loans so that you can make the best possible choice for yourself when it comes to, you know, moving forward and then assessing your priorities and just determining what you want to do. What do you want out of life? What do you want when it comes to your student loans? Do you want to pay them off quickly? Do you want to just pay the minimum for 20 years? I don't recommend it personally, but um, finding out what's right for you, I think is the most important. And then outside of that on the negotiating side, just have confidence in yourself, believe in yourself. And remember that graduate school was really hard, but you did that and you were successful and you can do all of these things too. Wow. Thank you both so much for coming tonight. This has been so helpful. Your advice is practical. You both are extremely positive and helpful. I'm really grateful for the work you're doing. I think it's going to be just really having an impact on a generation of new graduates and upcoming students. Um, are there any upcoming like projects or anything you guys have going on that you want to share? We 
We might have some stuff in the works coming up, but uh, nothing to share tonight. Nothing to share yet. Okay. <laughs> if people if people want to keep up with you guys, is there anywhere they can find you if they wanted to ask additional questions or anything like that? Professionally, I'm going to say LinkedIn is easier for me professionally. Um, Perfect. So you guys can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I should be Natalie J. Nelson on, on LinkedIn. So that's where you guys can find me. And I'm Ashley Hughes on there. And um, if you find one of us, you'll find both of us because we have posts that we're both tagged in on there. <laughs> well, that keeps it easy. Awesome. Well, I really am so grateful that you took the time uh, to talk over some of these really important things. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback from students. I'm sure you guys are going to get a lot more questions about all of these things because this is this is one of those, uh, you know, like I said earlier, awkward things, but you've all made it clear that it doesn't have to be awkward. It can just be a collaborative conversation that leads to everybody winning in the end. So I really thank you for breaking that down for us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Awesome. Well, maybe I'll have to bring y'all back sometime in the future and we can, I don't know if there's something else, maybe there's some crazy update in student loans or something and, and we need to break it down further, but I appreciate your, your perspectives. Awesome. Thanks, Dakota. Thank cool. you. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com ear. That's speechtherapypd.com E-A-R.